0: Welcome to Light for the Journey, a podcast of Russell Memorial United Methodist Church. Each week, we open the scriptures in faith that the timeless truth of God will guide us as we seek to follow in the steps of Jesus. What is love? This week, Pastor David Cartwright discusses the biblical definition of love. He tells us that biblical love is unlike the love we see in films and television. It is not easy or sappy and it goes beyond just the physical manifestations that show our love. Biblical love is hard, but it's also the most important thing we do as Christians. After all, they will know us by our love. As we go to our message today, let's open our hearts and minds to the truth that God would speak to us.
1: I'll invite you to turn in your word to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We'll be reading there, beginning at verse 1, Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth, and these indeed are quite familiar words. So let us begin reading 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning at verse 1. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy, and know all mysteries and all knowledge and if i have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love i am nothing and if i give all my possessions to feed the poor and if i deliver my body to be burned but do not have love it profits me nothing love is patient love is kind and is not jealous Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things." This is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I brought with me this morning a rock. It's a special rock. I have nine of these. I don't think, David, there's any way to zoom in on this close enough, so don't even try. Um, these were made by our, the youth of our church. Uh, each of the nine rocks has a painting of a piece of fruit and a a particular facet of the fruit of the Spirit as Paul describes in Galatians chapter 5. And, of course, the one I brought today is the one that says love. It has a little apple on it. I'm not sure why this one has the apple. Maybe apple comes first like love comes first in, in Paul's description. But I thought that was a pretty good place for us to start out talking about love on this day being reminded that Paul described love as part of the fruit that the Holy Spirit brings working in the life of the believer. I'll probably drop that from right there, but we'll see. It'll stare up at me. This text from 1 Corinthians chapter 13 certainly is familiar to us. But mostly, I would say that we have heard this read where? At weddings, right? Very commonly, when two people come to be married, they choose for the pastor to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's quite understandable when you have language that says that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, It's very easy to sentimentalize, isn't it? And we hear those words, and we sit in the pew, and we look up at the bride and the groom, and we get a little tear in our eye, and and the words warm our heart. I am very sure that when the Apostle Paul wrote these words, there was no such sentiment. Not that there was no sentiment at all, But Paul didn't write these words to be a a wedding liturgy. He wrote these words to address the context of a church. He wrote them to address something that was significantly lacking in relationships together. And so these words speak to any of us today because very few of us could possibly say that we are not in relationship with others in some form or fashion, in our families, father, son, mother, daughter, parent, child, siblings, uh, family, church, society. We are relational people. So these words speak to us in nearly any circumstance about the importance of this thing that Paul calls love. We also need to be reminded that Paul brings these words in the context of talking to the church about spiritual gifts. That the manifestations of the Holy Spirit gifting the people who are born-again Christians uh, to, to bear witness to the gospel and to do the works of God. In chapter 12, Paul has talked about the spiritual gifts. In chapter 14, Paul talks about spiritual gifts. Chapter 13 is stuck right in between them. And we should also be reminded that when Paul wrote this letter, he didn't include chapter and verse divisions. Those were given later. And unfortunately, one of the things that chapters and verses do for us is give us the propensity to take a little part of text, wrench it out of its context, and hear it to say something that's not necessarily connected to its context. Paul writes to a church that is manifesting all kinds of wonderful uh, acts of power, manifestations of the Holy Spirit, but he says to them, among all of these wonderful things that you're doing, there is one very important thing that is lacking. that's love. Paul offers the importance of love as a framework or a foundation, if you will, that will hold all these other things together. I don't know which analogy you would prefer. You can use the idea of a framework that holds all things in their proper places and makes them all beautiful. You could talk about love as a foundation upon which all these other, th- other things can be built and will stand upon. Whichever one works for you, that's fine. But that's, that's exactly what Paul is doing. Paul is saying, you have all of these great things going on for you, but if they are not done with love, if there's not love that is happening with them, what good is it all? That's exactly how chapter 13 starts. If I speak with tongues of men and angels but do not have love, I'm just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and I I know the mysteries and all knowledge, or if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but I have not love, then I am nothing. If I give all my possessions to the poor or deliver my body to be burned but I do not have love, it profits me nothing. All of these things sound wonderful. If I give away all my possessions, if I am full of the Holy Spirit, I'm able to do all these powerful things, but I don't do them in love. Paul says, what what does it amount to? Little, if anything. And likewise, any of us could look at our own lives, our, our lives together with our families or our lives in society. We can say, look what I do for my family. Look what I do for my church. Look what I do participating in all these community activities. And Paul may well say, yes, look at all you do. But are all of those things undergirded in love? Because if they're not... What does it profit? Very little, if anything. The whole idea reminds me of something that Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 7. You don't necessarily have to turn there, but if you want to glance back later, there's a little passage there in Matthew chapter 7 where... Uh, It starts at verse 15 where Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruit. And then a few sentences later, Jesus makes this comment. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. There will be people who say to me in that day, Lord, uh, did we not uh, prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons? Did we not do all kinds of miracles in your name? And he will say to them, Depart from me. I never knew you. What Jesus is essentially saying to them is, Yes, look at all the things you did. And do you not understand that they were all done having no relational connection with me. And that, my friends, sounds strangely similar to what Paul says to the church here. Look at all the wonderful things that could be done. Look at all the wonderful things that you're doing. But if there's no relational connection with love, what good is it? Before we move on, I do want to make a little bit of a a comment inclined toward a work that is a good number of years old now. Many of you would remember a work written by Dr. Gary Chapman called The Five Love Languages. Uh, it's a work that I have recommended on a number of occasions. I have used the knowledge and insights of that to, to work with people uh, both in the church and, and in other places. It's really a good work. And at the core of it is this idea that we all have our particular ways of expressing love, don't we? We, we don't all do it in exactly the same way. Uh, it's different from one person to the next, and so we give and receive love in different outward manifestations. That's absolutely true. That's not what Paul is talking about in these verses. In fact, Paul is talking about exactly the opposite. Dr. Chapman is saying we express love in different ways, and they are attached to outward manifestations. Paul is saying that it's very possible and frequently done that there are outward manifestations expressions that are done void of love. And that's the problem. When love is lacking in the ways that we offer ourselves to service, then there's a significant problem. And Paul does us a favor by not only just saying that love is necessary, he tells us what love looks like. I don't want to exegete the whole little section there, but maybe it's good for us to just kind of look at uh, some of the ways that Paul described love. It begins in verse 4 where Paul says that love is patient. Oh, there's that word we all say. Oh, that, how many of us wouldn't say, yes, I could use more patience? Okay, guys, when Paul says love is patient, he is not talking about the patience that says you're You're not throwing a fit, waiting on your wife to get ready to go somewhere. That's not the patience he's talking about. And yes, it could work the other way. Maybe some of you women are having to be patient, waiting on your men to get ready to go somewhere. In some Bible translations, the word is not patience, it's long-suffering. That probably gets better at what Paul is talking about. It's the ability to patiently endure troubles that come upon you slow to anger, slow to give revenge, bearing with the offenses of others. Now, it doesn't mean that when there is systemic evil that we turn a blind eye to it. That's not what Paul is talking about. But Paul is talking about what Jesus said when he said that when somebody slaps you on the cheek, what do you do? You turn the other to them. It's that patience, that long-suffering when, when we are enduring the troubles that others bring toward us. He goes on in verse 4 and says that love is not jealous. It's a very rich word. You might say, well, but shouldn't love be jealous in, in kind of some way? In fact, we could even be reminded that in some parts of the Bible that it, God is described as a jealous God. And so how do we reconcile those things? Well, the word jealous has really two different sides of its meaning. There, there, we might say there's a positive side to it and a negative side to it. The positive side would be like uh, to desire earnestly to strive after another. That's, that's a good thing, to have that yearning in the heart for, for another. But the bad side of it is to be heated with envy because of another. You refer back to Galatians chapter 5, Paul there talks about jealousy as one of the works of the flesh, the deeds of the flesh, that that which comes out of our ungodly nature. Uh, Stephen in Acts chapter 7 refers to jealousy before he is martyred, and he points back to Genesis chapter 37 when he says the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph. And what he's talking about there were, were all the sons of Jacob, who became jealous of their brother Joseph. And you can probably understand why, right? Joseph, the one who got that coat of many colors from his father, who uh, said, told his brothers that he had a dream that they would end up bowing down and serving him. And what did that cause within the brothers? Jealousy. They rose in, well, who do you think you are? You know, you're your dad's favorite or you think your dad's favorite and you think you're going to be so good that we're all going to bow down to you? That, that, that negative side of jealousy that rose up with envy inside of them, and they ended up selling it. They were going to kill him, but ended up selling him to some Ishmaelites that were on their way to, to Egypt. And that's what Paul is saying here, is that, that bad side of jealousy that causes us to rise up with envy toward some other person. That's, that's not what love does. Now... Am I going to be jealous if some man wants to come and walk off with my wife? Yes, I'm going to be jealous. That's the good side of jealousy. There's a reason to be jealous there, but that's not what Paul is talking about here. Paul says in verse 4 that love is not puffed up. In some Bible translation, it'll say arrogant or proud, uh, That which is full of oneself. And maybe he pulls it all together or much of it together in verse 5 where Paul says that love does not seek its own. And that's really kind of a great summary statement that, that pulls together much of what Paul has said here in other ways. Love does not seek its own. It's not jealous. It does not vaunt itself. It's not puffed up. It's not about self. How many times have we said, It's not about us. It's not about us. If I were a grade school teacher, uh, I would say to the class, now take out a pencil and paper, and I want you to write 50 times. It's not about me. It's not about me. It's not about me. I don't know if teachers still employ that tactic. Maybe we could. It'll get ingrained in us. It's not about me. How much of the New Testament Scripture says that it's not about me. It's getting self out of the way. It's what Paul says here. Love says it's not about me. Love does not seek its own. I was thinking back and remembered a time, uh, a good number of years ago, when a man uh, shared in in a covenant group uh, a realization that he had come to, and and I I have no qualms about sharing this because it's been so long ago and. There's no way unless you had been in that group that you would have any idea about whom I was talking. And so it's, it's quite safe. But the man said, you know, I, was, I, I have long thought that I was, I've been so good to my wife, you know. I pat myself on the back because I do this for my wife and I do that for my wife and I do all these wonderful things for my wife. And God finally opened my eyes to the reality that if I pride deeply enough, I was doing all these things for my wife simply to see what I could get out of it. And I have ever since thought that that's one of the most honest confessions that I've ever heard. To realize that all these wonderful things that he was doing really were being done out of selfishness. And to tell you the truth, I'm pretty sure that I could stand just as convicted as he was. Real love is motivated for the good of the other and not the self. Paul goes on and says that in verse 5 that love is not easily provoked. Uh, my Bible translation just says love is not provoked. It's probably better to say love is not easily provoked. Have you ever noticed that some people are almost like a puddle of gasoline waiting on a spark? You know, that's just kind of the way some people are wired. And it's probably one of those ways that we ought to say, you know, maybe that's not how we ought to be. If that's my nature, if I'm easily provoked, if I'm just, you know, one little thing just sets me off, then maybe that's not love working in me. And then again in verse 5, Paul says that love does not take into account a wrong suffered. The word in that phrase is most often in the Bible translated as an evil, an evil suffered, that which comes to you in a harmful way, a bad way. Sometimes it's done out of intentionality, sometimes it's just accidental, but think of it this way, that it's very natural for us to operate almost like an accountant. We keep a ledger in our minds for every other person in our life, And and the real question is, is that person operating in the black or in the red? Have they done more good things to us than bad things? Have they offended us in some way that we have them in a negative balance? And it affects how we relate to that person. It affects how we think about that person. Paul says to the church, love doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. In other words, all of those bad things that we want to hold on to and, and bring up at any given moment, Paul says that love just marks through them, take them out of the ledger. Boy, that's hard to do, isn't it? That's hard to do. But that's what love does. And quite frankly, that's what keeps so many relationships in a fractured, unhealthy state. When we keep an account of a wrong suffered and we hold it in the back of our minds and at just the right time, we, we bring it up and we leverage it against that person. Love doesn't do that. When we look at the way Paul has described love in these verses, we come to realize that it is a beautiful description of, <laughs> of how Jesus walked among us. It is a perfect description of how God came and manifested Himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And when we understand that, we understand that when love is recommended to us, it is doing nothing short than recommending that we walk in a Christ-like fashion. We love as God has loved us. And we know that as followers of Jesus Christ, we're called to do that. We are called to love as God has loved. And if we are called to love as God has loved, we will know that we are called to choose to love as God has chosen to love. And that, my friends, is one of the most important aspects of this passage. I mentioned to you a few moments ago that I've shared this passage of scripture on numerous occasions standing before a bride and a groom and i really don't hesitate to do so because my hope always is that the the bride and the groom and everyone sitting there listening will come to understand the nature of the words that are being shared because what is described in this passage is not an emotion It is a manifestation of Christ working through us by choice. And we have to know that. We have to know that this is love that is chosen, not love that is fallen into. Have you ever really thought about the fact that if we fall in love, we can fall out of love? If it's something that we fall into, it's something we can fall out of. That's not what Paul has described here. The 18th century preacher Jonathan Edwards had a way of framing love in two different ways. I'll share it with you, uh, confessing right off the bat that the the terms that he uses could be a little bit confusing, so I'll try to just kind of frame it in a very easy way so that you can see the contrast between the two. Jonathan Edwards talked about love of complacence, And love of benevolence. The the terms are a little bit awkward, so let me see if I can describe in his words first and then by comparison. For love of complacence, he simply described it as a, a delight in the beauty of something, whereas love of benevolence would be the affection of one's heart toward another being. An affection that causes that person to incline the heart toward that other person's well being and happiness. Okay, I'll, I'll unpack that for you. Let's go to this phrase that I know some of you have used before I love tacos. Does that describe anybody? Okay. There are many of you out there who would say, yep, I've said that before. If that doesn't describe you, Pretend for a moment that it does, okay? I love tacos. Now, I've suggested before that we probably shouldn't use love in those terms, but I've been guilty of it on a number of occasions, so we'll give each other grace. If you say, I love tacos, let me ask you this. Why do you love tacos? Because, they're gr- because they taste great, right? Okay? You, you enjoy eating them. For Jonathan Edwards, that would be an example of love of complacence. You find in that thing something delightful, something that pleases you. And it's because of that that you love it. Would you love tacos if they tasted nasty? Of course not. Okay? So your love of tacos depends on its ability to bring delight to you. Okay? It's a love of response to what you see in it. That for Jonathan Edwards would be love of complacence. That is in contrast to love of benevolence. Love of benevolence is a choice to love not in response but because your heart is inclined toward that other. And because your heart is inclined toward that other, you pursue for the good, the happiness, the well-being of that other person. It's not responding to that other person. The love doesn't start with that other person. The love starts with you. And that is exactly how God has loved us. And you say, well, preacher, how do you know that? Because that's what Scripture tells us. Think about what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Where he says, but God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, he precedes that with this conversation about the the very slim possibility that we might choose for a good man to die. We might, might choose to lay down our life for someone who is worthy of us laying down our life for them. It's slim, but on occasion that would happen. But Jesus gave his life for those who weren't even worthy for it. And that's the point. You see, God's love is based not as a response to our worthiness, but because his heart inclines toward us. It's It's a love out of choice. Not a love of response. And you see, that's what Paul describes here is not an emotion. It is a love that we choose to do. And that's why I've said to to brides and grooms before, there's going to be that day, you know, you have a bride and a groom standing before you and their hearts are just overflowing. And you go, oh, this person, I mean, they're just, they're the best person you'll ever find in their life. Oh, you're not going to feel like that every morning. Oh, there's going to be that morning when they've left the cap off the toothpaste or, you know, all these other things. But you're choosing to love. And you see, it's not just about a husband and his wife. It's about a parent and a child. It's about family relationships. It's about church relationships. It's about relationships in general. When we choose to love, our love is not dependent on the worthiness of the other. Our love is motivated simply out of the love of Christ working in our hearts. And that, my friends, is something that John Wesley called Christian perfection. That's a term that Wesley floated out, and I know it's a term that has caused some people to stumble because we say, Christian perfection, we can't be perfect here in this life, can we? We're going to fail, I'm, not, I'm going to stumble, I'm not always going to get it right. We understand that. But John Wesley's idea of Christian perfection was really, I don't want to say it's simple, simple or basic. Actually, it's very rich, but it's not complicated. It's rooted in the idea that perfection is not, it does not mean flawlessness. It means completion, it means maturity. And Wesley understood that if we take the New Testament seriously, even the words of Jesus, especially the words of Jesus, then we see that he calls us to that level of maturity. He calls us to be able to allow his his love to flow freely and fully from our hearts. Let me just use Wesley's own words, okay? Okay. Because his idea of Christian perfection was, quote, to have a heart that is habitually filled with the love of God and neighbor and having the mind of Christ walking as Jesus walked. And We understand that we are called to those very things. Will we always do it? Probably not. Can we do it? Absolutely. And by God's grace, we can do it even habitually to use john wesley's words to habitually have our loves ha- have our hearts filled overflowing with the love of christ toward others yes we can yes we should love love is a great gift to give And we realize that as we give it, we are doing nothing more and nothing less than extending the very presence of Christ to the world around us. I want you to remember Jesus and some of his last words to his disciples. Found in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Before going to the cross, he said to his disciples, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, so also should you love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul was trying to get across to the church. And I would say by extension it is exactly what he would want to get across to husbands and wives and to parents and children and to extended family members and even our love uh, spread abroad in the community. That people will know we are followers of Jesus Christ when love undergirds all the things that we do all the efforts that we give, all the time that we spend, all the talents that we share, any place, anywhere, if they are rooted and grounded in the love of Christ shed abroad, then, oh, how powerful they will be. And so my prayer is that as we look to give ourselves in so many ways for so many causes, that we will make sure that all of those things are grounded in the fundamental, transformational love of Jesus Christ operating in our lives. It is the best gift that we will give. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for shedding your love abroad in our hearts. We could not love if it were not for your Holy Spirit making that love real for us. We could not love had had Jesus not come and shown us what love really looks like. But he has. He has shown us in fullness. He has shown us the selflessness of love. And God, you have told us that by your power, that that same love can flow freely from us. We would ask that, God. God. We would ask by the power of your Holy Spirit that our hearts would overflow with love and that in everything we do, in the way we serve our families, in the way we serve our churches, in the way that we live our lives in relationship with others, that it would be grounded, rooted, overflowing with that love of Christ and that we may truly be the presence of Christ for those that we live in relationship with every single day. Accomplish it. For it, we will give you the praise and glory in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.
0: We're glad that you chose to spend this time with us in God's Word. You can catch our worship services online at www.rmumc.net. May the Lord grant you the light of his truth as you journey through this day.